Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Joining me on the show today is Louis Dubin, principal and managing partner at Redbrick LMD. They are a real estate developer with a pipeline of Opportunity Zone projects in Metro Washington, D.C. Louis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Louis. Pleasure to be here with you today. You and I met at the IMN Family Office Real Estate Conference in Dana Point, California back in June. You were on the Opportunity Zone panel with me. It was great meeting you there. You know, afterward, after our panel, we got to talking at the cocktail hour later that afternoon uh, about optimal leverage on an Opportunity Zone deal. You had some really interesting thoughts there. So how are you guys u- utilizing leverage on your deals at Redbrick? And, and what in your mind is the optimal amount of leverage to do an OZ deal? And, and how do Opportunity Zone compliance issues kind of play into that? Sure, great question. Um... Well, first and foremost, um, typically we, we, we believe less leverage is always better. It de-risks the deal. Let's remember that you have to substantially improve to qualify under the OZ rules um, when you're dealing with real estate. And with that substantial improvement test, usually it's, uh, it's 50% or more. I won't go into all the specifics, but you're constructing things. And very often you're constructing new buildings. In theory, you could take an old building, and if the ratios work, you could substantially improve an old building and qualify. But most people build new buildings, and uh, there's always substantial risk in building something new. So we like lower leverage as opposed to higher leverage, especially in times like today, where your guess is as good as, as mine, where inflation's gonna fall out. You know, there's been huge construction uh, uh, cost uh, uh, inflation, and you know, low leverage we think is like a really prudent thing. So we're typically 35 to 40% leveraged uh, in the construction phase, which means uh, 60 to 65% cash equity, old fashioned, not preferred equity, not MEVs, 60 to 65% uh, is uh, opportunity zone uh, capital, the 35 to 40% being debt. And it's interesting, and it's not intuitive, but because of the OZ rules, where you typically have to have your capital in for 10 years in a day, um, proceeds of refinance, if you've held for at least two years, come out tax-free up to 100% of your original investment. So if you have uh, a lot of uh, cash, a lot of equity in the deal, um, when you go to refinance after you've finished your building, most of the capital um, in that refinance is going to go to pay back the equity and not the debt. And in a higher uh, uh, leverage situation, um, you'll be lucky to get 10 to 20% of the equity out if you're leveraged at 75, 80%. So um, by going very uh, uh, with very large amounts of equity into our deals, um, most of the capital should come back once we refinance in year 
three or four once we've completed and leased up the buildings, as opposed to waiting until you're ten to get most of your capital with all your capital back. So for all those financial people out there, do the math. If you're getting most of your capital back in year three, four, versus waiting until year 10, 11, 12, um, it actually generates a higher IRR by putting in more equity capital. Now, there's a limitation to it. You can't, uh, you, you can't receive back more tax-free than 100% of the initial investment. So the magic number, we've had our finance people run it a number of times. In theory, you could really go as low as 20, 22%. Uh, 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 debt to equity. Um, at some point, uh, 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 you you can't use all the proceeds that you'd get out. For instance, if you went 100% equity, um, not all those dollars would qualify the way that I'm describing. So the magic point is 20, 22%. Um, and uh, we've chosen around a 35% target. Um, you know, sometimes it'll be 36, 37, 38, could be a little less than 35, it all depends. But it's accretive. It's accretive to yield. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And I'm sure, you know, it kind of depends on the economics from deal to deal, how much mm-hmm. leverage that you you want to put in. But that's, I mean, even at uh, 30%, 35% or so is is fairly low leverage. Are, are other, are, do you see other developers or, or other asset management firms who are providing financing for deals coming in with that low amount of leverage or are you unique in that regard? Um, I think we're pretty unique. I think we are lower leveraged than most, but we also have a unique circumstance. Um, All all of the land that we develop on, um, we already own. So it comes in a new basis. And sometimes it comes in vis-a-vis a ground lease, uh, and certainly a lot of stuff was coming in VCB ground lease before the new clarifications came out last uh, last fall winter. Uh, now we're going to a fee simple structure. But some of your viewers may recall that uh, once upon a time with the earlier rules, it was uncertain on whether a fee simple deal would really work if you were a previous owner and the ground lease structure was preferable for many of the law firms and accountants. Uh, today with the new clarifications, we're confident in going fee simple. Um, so it does depend on whether you're, you're, you're putting the land in subject to a ground lease or fee simple in terms of leverage rates as well. There's a lot of different factors. Hmm, interesting. Well, you know, the, the one thing I really like about um, your model there, Louis, is, well, on top of the fact that it, it bumps up the IRR, on top of the fact that it increases the yield in the long run, is that you're getting more liquidity back to your equity investors right before that crucial time when they have to uh, recognize that initial capital gain that they rolled over into your investment fund, right? They have a tax liability that comes due in spring of 2027, recognizing mm-hmm. that capital gain in 26. And now they've got the, the liquidity to actually be able to pay it off, I think, which is, which is pretty thoughtful, right? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really thoughtful. I just think it makes sense. It's it makes sense. My partners and I tend to be, you know, major investors in what we own, and you know, makes sense for us. And uh, uh, we we think it, it it makes a lot of sense. We'll go to um, higher leverage points, uh, 65, 60, well, sixty to seventy percent. Once we have a stabilized asset, there's no reason not to use if leverage is creative, not to use leverage sixty to seventy percent. If you already have uh, stabilized cash flow in place, 
you know, and most of what we're building are uh, 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 multifamily apartment buildings where we've only seen rents increasing in our market. And we also build office buildings if we have a, uh, if we have a substantial pre-lease uh, for the building with the tenant that we're comfortable with, with a long-term duration. And one of the buildings we're just finishing is to a healthcare system that took 100% of the building, uh, which gave us the confidence of building an office building, actually starting during the pandemic, a new office building. How do you like that? But it was for a healthcare system and clinic, which physically needs to do research and see people. So that made a lot of sense. But typically what we're doing is an awful lot of multifamily. Um, DC is unique with defense, intel, uh, uh, security, and cyber. And we're seeing a lot of growth there. So we're also in the midst of putting together the new uh, National Cyber Security uh, Leadership Center which we're working with a number of different institutions to put together both academic, government, quasi-government, and private sector, um, right around the side, you know, right around the cybersecurity uh, research and workforce development space. So we will do office buildings, but we, but but we, but they must be substantially pre-leased for us to sure. do. Uh, or the default is in our portfolio. Um, is uh, 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 multifamily unless we have an office user. Sure. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense these days, right? Uh, I want to talk more about the property types that you're developing, why you like multifamily, when office makes sense. Let's 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 get back to that point in a few minutes here, Louis. Yes, but you mentioned uh, the high level of inflation a minute ago. We're recording this episode in the middle of July, so we actually just got the CPI print from I think it was yesterday or the day before. 9.1% is what inflation hit uh, from the same month last year. Uh, just incredible. Highest level of inflation in the last 40 years. I think I've, I've been saying that for the last uh, couple of months now, but it, it seems to be getting worse and worse, obviously. On top of that, there's supply chain issues. Interest rates are going up. Um, pretty turbulent economic period that we find ourselves living in these days in the middle of 2022 here. Louis, has, have any of these factors, high inflation, supply chain issues, interest rates going up, looming in session, looming recession, excuse me, possibly, what impact has that had on your operations at Redbrick? Have, have you noticed any delays or any modifications or are projects needing more funding now? What, what, what can you tell us about the impact of our current macroeconomic climate on, on what you guys are doing? Um, excellent questions. Let me start with the last projects needing more funding. Um, our low leverage strategy really works well in this kind of environment. So we're pretty well suited with the low leverage because I think banks are getting more and more rest reticent to go further up the capital stack in, in, in how much they'll lend you. So there were, there were good. Um, I think that, uh, there are lots of challenges to develop today. Um, There'll be lots of people that won't be able to uh, uh, deal with those challenges and won't build their buildings, which is sort of, you know, there'll be less supply out there. And we believe, and in Washington, D.C., we're very fortunate to have a high growth market in terms of job growth. It's all about jobs. People are working. Um, people need places to live. We can debate how much space they need to work. Most of our buildings today are... Uh, 
substantially designed for people that will be spending time working from home. Um, 80% of our units today have uh, substantial balconies, at least six feet uh, deep. So there's some certain mitigants of what's going on today. And one of them is, uh, is designing buildings that are appropriate for today. But going, going back to inflation and the, and the rest of it, sure, the cost of borrowing is more. Um, but at the same time, the rent trade-outs, we have a few thousand uh, apartment units that we own, and the rent trade-outs are as much as 10% these days. So we're seeing huge uh, price inflation on rents. That shouldn't be new news to most of your viewers. We're reading about that. I don't care if you're where you are in this country, if you're in a vibrant market that has, you know, job growth, um, you're going to see these crazy, wacky uh, uh, rental inflation numbers. So um, we feel pretty, pretty good about that, that we're seeing higher rents. Without those higher rents, you couldn't build buildings at today's higher cost. And uh, those higher rents are tracking. So that's a good thing. In, in D.C. particular, we're absorbing all of the tremendous amount of new units in Washington, uh, primarily around the Navy Yard. They're sort of the, sort of the Capitol Riverfront, sort of the dominant place. But you know, inflation is a very real thing. Low leverage, teams that really know what they're doing. Um, you need uh, uh, high job growth markets, you know, for lenders uh, uh, to feel good. Supply chain is very, a very, very good question. I don't know. We certainly aren't sourcing uh, materials from Ukraine today, um, and maybe not Latvia. And I'm, I'm not saying that facetiously, but we're really taking a good hard look on where uh, uh, the materials and where, uh, where our finishes are being uh, sourced from, and you know, making real-time decisions on is it worth the supply chain risk if it's coming from a far distance. So these are very real things that you're dealing with when you're building buildings that are hundreds of millions of dollars each. So you can also afford to put in professional time to go through that. Um, and costs have risen. And in some cases, costs have risen um, you know, extremely. We think that that's temporary with a lot of the commodity pricing because most of the major commodity pricing, as you may know, has come down substantially. And we think the market is still lagging on today's contractor price versus where that price may be in a few months. So the last 20, 30% of what we're buying in a building, like finishes, for instance, uh, cabinetry work, maybe even appliances, not switch gear, but stuff that you, that you put in at the end. Um, we're going to hold off on buying some of that because we think those prices are going to come down significantly um, because of inflation, higher cost of borrowing, Less projects are going to get the green light. The contractors won't be as busy. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of our strategy there. So we're, we're going full speed ahead. Investors continue to like the multifamily space, whether it's OZ or otherwise. OZ, they love the tax benefits. We all know how unbelievable this, this four to 500 basis point, you know, uh, benefit is. Um, um, because the sovereigns decided to put a program together to give you that benefit, um, so we're you know we're, we're 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 feeling good, but we're working much harder. 
we're working much harder to finalize our budgets on our buildings, on our structures today. Um, but we think there'll, there'll also be less competition. Yeah, fair enough. And it seems like you see light at the end of the tunnel too, right? With regard to rising prices, maybe some, some prices are starting to stabilize. In terms of the rising costs that you're encountering, have, is, it, is it mostly materials costs that have gone up that have impacted you? Or is it the cost of labor? You mentioned contractors, or is it a little bit of both? I and mean, what, what, what's really more, more responsible for the rising costs for you guys at least? I wish the contractors would be more transparent. We're trying. Mm -hmm. We're trying very hard to get that exact transparency. Because if we know, for instance, copper and electrical wire and lumber, for instance, has come down on a commodity pricing and we're, we're being quoted commodity pricing numbers based on a few months ago where that price may have fallen out. Um, then we're basically putting it to contractors today prove to us, show us that you're paying labor that much more. And I don't think that's the case. I think for a little while, the contractors were allowed to take this supply chain hysteria and charge whatever the heck they wanted. So we're, we are fleshing that out as we speak. We are demanding line by line item transparency on the labor component and the commodity component. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. So it's no longer a case where you're just seeing one bottom line number that you have to write a check for. You actually want to see what goes into that number a little bit uh, If more. I took you through what we do, we have a whole construction team internally. Mm -hmm. um, and our head of construction, one of the greatest construction executives in the country, he started life, thankfully, as an estimator once upon a time. <laughs> and they are literally going through because we just don't believe it. Just we're rational people. It just doesn't make sense. If all these commodity prices are coming down, then prove to us that now labor is making double the wage they were making a year ago. I don't believe it. We don't believe it. We don't see that. Sure. But we'll see. We'll see. The building's still pencil. They still make sense. Again, because the rents have caught up with all of this. And uh, um, I think there'll be less deliveries of buildings than we were, than we were forecasting uh, a year and two years ago. Because it's more costly? to yes. put them up. And, 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 if you're, and if you're leveraged, if you have 20, 25% equity and you're going with the super leverage, it doesn't work today. Right, right. And have you, have you had to adjust your fundraising numbers? Have you had to raise more equity for some of your projects than maybe you would have thought a year or two ago? I can't, I, I can't really talk about fundraising. What I can talk about is construction budgets okay. and construction budgets absolutely on a number of projects have gone up, but uh, at, 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 in, in, in the same at the same time, so are expected rents. So it really hasn't diminished or uh, or hurt the uh, it hasn't economic changed case. how the projects pencil out. Yeah, the projects still pencil out. Yeah. Any um, other challenges that you're facing these days we haven't covered yet? Oh, it's always challenges. You know, the, the supply chain, figuring out where you want to buy, you know, your big component parts from. Um, the other big challenge is we have gone to a, uh, a net carbon zero from operations uh, cornerstone in all of our new buildings. It's really important because not a lot of people are doing that. Everyone's talking about it. There are really in conferences. A lot of people are getting educated on it. We've been getting ourselves educated on it over the last few years. There's a lot of competing standards. 
what's the right outcome? How do you measure yourself? Um, it's a whole new brave world, this, this carbon neutrality world, and it's dead real. And there's a big challenge in understanding what the right metrics are to apply. Like, for instance, years ago, for many years, we all used the lead standard, uh, lead, lead uh, gold, lead platinum. You know, I don't think lead silver even exists anymore. Maybe it does. But, you know, that was the standard for many years about a more environmentally responsible building, right? We all sort of knew that there was a lead standard. Um, we don't know what that new standard is or what that standard is. There's a number of uh, uh, standards, ILFI, um, number of competing standards for net carbon zero from operations. What does it mean? How do they exactly they're going to score? It? How subjective is it? So we're learning a new vernacular. We're learning a new uh, way of uh, 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 building buildings that are more carbon, that are carbon neutral and car more carbon friendly. Big challenge conferences, learnings, readings, um, technology, um, different uh, uh, HVAC systems, different mechanical, electrical, even the plumbing, the water usage. So it's cool stuff. So I'm, I really feel like a kid, again, learning a lot of new stuff. I think next week our whole team is going and learning about uh, uh, wastewater and sewage and how to tap that energy from the warmth that... Uh, that uh, uh, effluent creates um, and how you harness that. And all these things adding up goes into a more energy friendly and, and carbon neutral uh, uh, building. So that's been a challenge. And our, one of our other big challenges is we are designing right now um, what we believe will be the first carbon neutral building not from operations, carbon neutral building in the building of the building, which will be 130 foot tall um, apartment building made out of wood, cross laminated timber, CLT to your readers. Read about it. You heard it from me. If you hadn't heard it before, you see a lot of this into the future. And to go 130 feet, is not permitted in most codes in most cities in the U.S. today. So you literally have to have a progressive city that's willing to use an international standard uh, into the future uh, to give you the waivers and the abilities to uh, build these buildings out of You're wood. not allowed to go that high with timber in most places. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. Right. Um, but the fire rating on many of these buildings is a higher than steel and concrete. Okay. Because, it's, because it's CLT, not just regular wood timber yes there is a yeah. technology it's sort of a cross laminated uh it's like a glue lamb for those that know construction okay. it's a it's a very it's like an interwoven uh, beam if you've been in some old mill buildings that were built out of wood years ago and you and you can sort of picture that um this is a technology and a coating that gives you a very because of the density and the structural propensity of the materials a very high uh, fire rating so then the construct, not just the operations of the building once it's in service, but the actual construction of the building is carbon neutral or net carbon zero. Please, exactly. Interesting. And why is that important to you guys at Redbrick LMD? Why are you undergoing the development of these net carbon zero buildings? We think it's the right thing to do. And we think it enhances long-term yield. There will be, we believe there'll be carbon taxes on buildings that don't do this. We think that this 
that, 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 that we will be dinosaurs and obsolete the buildings that aren't doing this 10, 15, 20 years from now. And since we're long-term holders, we think this is the entire direction that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, the urban larger buildings are going in or will go in. I think we're a little ahead of the curve, but if we have a you know, 10, 12, 15 year view, we think it's the responsible thing to do to be asking ourselves what our investors are going to want to buy in 10 to 15 years. And we think they will all pay a premium if you've delivered a building that is net carbon zero. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So to avoid possible future carbon taxation, are you, are you getting any net zero carbon tax credits for what you're doing these days? Do those even exist or is that, uh, or are you a little bit, a little yeah, bit too that far ahead for that? None of that is a meaningful component of the finance of this. Although there is some, there's some energy financing for CPACE. There's some energy programs for, you know, smarter, greener, uh, more efficient energy. Um, but that really isn't part of the equation. It's, it's really quite simple. Um, when we go to sell our buildings in say 12 years, um, we believe that if we aren't carbon net carbon zero from operations, we don't know if it's 50 basis points, 75 basis points, 100 basis points, but there's going to be, we're, we're going to trade at a much higher cap rate hmm. than someone that built carbon zero from operations. Sure. And, you know, anything over 50 bips in terms of difference in value um, justifies spending the extra dollars today to do what I'm describing. We also believe that if we're building buildings that are net carbon zero, those will trade for even more of an enhanced premium than just carbon zero from operations. So, yeah, we think it's smart business and a lot of people agree with us. Yeah. And there's a whole impact side of the world in investing that, uh, that wildly agrees with us, both for economic and for their own sort of uh, environmental and social take on the world. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, think what you want about uh, the importance of of being carbon neutral and impact investing. It's uh, those are those are politically charged topics. But the fact of the matter is there is a business case for what you're doing and, and you've got a long term vision there. So I think that makes a lot of sense, Louis. I uh, wanted to shift gears and talk more about opportunity zones, specifically in your backyard where you guys are doing all of your development in Washington, D.C. And I'm just I'm pulling up on my other screen over here right now, Opportunity DB. We've got a page about Washington, D.C.'s Opportunity Zones. I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes for today's episode. But it looks like there's there's 25 Opportunity Zones in Washington, D.C., mostly concentrated east of the mall on the east side and, and a little bit in the southeast as well. What can you tell us about Washington, D.C.'s Metro opportunity zones, Louis. Where where are they located exactly? What's the market like? Uh, what what kind of buildings you're you're doing in O zones there? Tell us everything you can about Washington D.C. and the state of OZ development in Washington D.C. Um, so I would say the vast majority of the opportunity zones in D.C. are are in Southeast D.C. as you said, and uh, D.C. is a little bit different as a city um, because of the height limitations for the most part you're limited to 130 feet of height in Washington, DC. So uh, once the city, which is really current, is, is built out or is being occupied by uh, uh, residential 
very hard to move people in Washington, all the rest of it. Um, you really don't have any more terra firma for growth. You don't have land. The last remaining land for growth, for the most part, um, was in Southeast. And that's why the Fed, starting about 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and with the privatization of St. Elizabeth's, which was an old uh, federally owned hospital, half went to the federal government, the other half went to the District of Columbia to redevelop. Homeland Security built and opened just before the pandemic their new headquarters um, in Southeast. Um, so they moved from Northwest, uh, their headquarters to Southeast. And with that, the Coast Guard headquarters moved just before them as well. Customs and Border Patrol is coming. ICE is coming to that campus as well. And uh, the new Cyber Command, CISA, Cyber Infrastructure and Security Agency, is being built as we speak. This was one of the last places that had land to build large uh, federal or other, other projects in the District of Columbia on Metro. This was like it. DC is small. It's not a, not a big territory. And those jobs really drove uh, uh, an awful lot of infrastructure needs in this area that historically uh, really was just not given its fair share of funding and was sort of passed over and overlooked. It also happened to be historically um, for the last 50 years uh, amongst the lowest income areas in Washington, D.C., so you had this confluence of land being available, the feds basically taking a lot of it for the federal growth in security, as I said earlier, um, and cyber. Um, and uh, around that, there were housing, housing needs, shopping needs, food needs, healthcare, all kinds of needs. And so a lot of the opportunity zones in D.C., are fulfilling the needs of workers and jobs that have located before the infrastructure came. It's really quite interesting, unique. And that's because there just wasn't much land left in the District of Columbia. So it is an incredible market for, uh, uh, for uh, uh, investing. The opportunity zone overlay really was important because it took a lot of people got them very focused on, hey, is there an opportunity here? Because if there is, this is very tax efficient. So people that otherwise maybe weren't looking at Southeast for 50 years, it was sort of like a prior location. And they scratched their head and said, wait a second, the last 10 years, is that right? $30 billion was built at the Capitol uh, Riverfront, or you probably know it as the Navy Yard. $30 billion down there. $30 billion in D.C., in an area that when I was a kid, there was no reason to go to. Maybe you'd go there to buy a used tire or old warehouses. And certainly you wouldn't go there at night. It was sort of a, you know, it was not a, not a place to go. So all this transformation happened. And it happened in Southeast. So you have the most expensive, some of the most expensive rentals and neighborhoods now in DC, in Southeast. The rents in Southeast far eclipse the rents, for instance, in Bethesda, Maryland. A lot of your viewers may know Bethesda. For many years, that was one of our major mega, you know, suburban markets that people paid, you know, very fulsome rents at. Um, Capitol Riverfront is uh, 
uh, much higher, right? It's 30% or more higher than Bethesda today. So this is, this is where people want to live, work, and play. Um, they have easy access to jobs. And we're talking about sites that are a mile, two miles, three miles from the capital. So very close in. And um, it's very exciting to be part of it. There's also a multi-billion dollar infrastructure program with a new bridge, with new uh, infrastructure tunnels, with new highways, with new interchanges. It's one of the biggest uh, 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 infrastructure improvements in the history of our region. And that's and so the area of, that's just right over your shoulder there, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Here we go. There it is. <laughs> Other side. There's the new bridge. Yeah. So it's it's exciting. It's it's exciting. So the buildings that we're building are heavily tilted to multifamily. We currently have about a pipeline of about four million feet to build uh, that we currently own. This is dirt that we own that we've acquired over the last ten years. Um, and uh, we're building an, uh, an awful lot of multifamily rental, um, typically with a twelve uh, percent affordable component. Um, and we're building uh, uh, office buildings when we have an end user like this healthcare system I was describing that'll be moving into their 132,000 foot building um, on the campus, the private side campus in St. Elizabeth's, across from Homeland Security. Um, I think we give them the keys for their space in November, um, this coming fall. Um, so we'll build office buildings if we have a long-term uh, tenant um, that commits to, uh, uh, to the building, um, you know, all or most of all the building. And yeah, well, so, so, so thanks. For, let's, let's get back to, uh, your buildings a little bit more. I know you can't talk about your fund or your fundraising, uh, but we can talk about some of the buildings and your pipeline. Sure. You spoke about it a few minutes ago. We're getting back to it now. Uh, tell us more about your pipeline. How many construction projects or potential deals do you have in it? And, and you mentioned you're doing mostly multifamily, but I think there's also some office in there as well that, that you touched upon a few minutes ago as well. Is that right? Yeah. Um, we, we currently, we have uh, over 10 sites uh, that we own. Um, we'll go vertical on a couple of the new, new sites a year, you know, two or three that could be, that could be faster if we were to sign, for instance, a major office tenant. Um, and those sites are located in Southeast, uh, right across, primarily right across from uh, the Capitol Riverfront and the uh, Nationals Ballpark. A lot of your viewers probably know the ballpark. There's also a new soccer stadium. And the, the district right before COVID, about a year before COVID, developed and delivered the new entertainment sports arena right next to us in Southeast. Um, in, uh, uh, in St. Elizabeth, which is where the world champion mystics play. Um, now, this, this has become a big entertainment area for the district as well. Again, our soccer stadium, our baseball stadium, our uh, arena where the uh, WNBA plays. It's also one of the... Is that, is that a different arena from where the, the Capitals and the Wizards play? Yeah, they play downtown on 7. Uh, they play at the okay. Capital One Arena. Gotcha. Um, but this, this ESA, Entertainment Sports Arena, next to us at, at, at St. Elizabeth's, is also where uh, a lot of the major worldwide gaming competitions, the uh, virtual gaming competitions, uh, take place. So they built it as a, a virtual gaming 
uh, arena as well. So it's pretty cool. That's about a hundred events a year, typically. Hmm. And uh, it's added an awful lot to the neighborhoods that we're developing in the Southeast. No, very All these together, but this one, especially you can walk to from yeah, most of our no, that, that, that sounds really neat. I, I, so I was actually just in that part uh, of DC a couple weeks ago with my family. We, we went to a nationals game at that nationals ballpark. I know it hasn't been there very long, but I, I, I had no idea that that part of the city was, was as run down as you were describing um, maybe 30 or 40 years prior it, uh, it was actually brand new and, and 15 uh, years, 15, 15 years. years, really interesting. 15 years ago. Yeah. It's an epic story. Harvard and many universities are doing case studies on the Capitol Riverfront now and what's happened there and how do we study that and all the rest of it. It's pretty interesting. Where'd you go to dinner when you were down there? Like, share with your viewers if you went somewhere particularly good. Oh, where did we go? Uh, I think we found some Italian restaurant actually up uh, on the other side of the mall, up in the mo more, more central part of DC. I don't think, cause it was a day game. So got it. we, we, we got hey. out of there and, uh, and headed back up uh, across the mall to where we were staying. Uh, I can't remember the name of the restaurant now, unfortunately. But Some <laughs> of our top Michelin star restaurants now in D.C. are in the Capital Riverfront. Hmm. Like, I'll, have to go back, I'll have to go back and check that out next time I'm in town. And the Standard Hotel from New York is, at the is in the Capital Riverfront. Hmm. You know, it's a big coolness factor. Great, great part of town down it's there. It's a great DC, part of town. I'm sure. Uh, you know, another topic I wanted to bring up, Louis, you know, right before we hit the record button, you mentioned to me that you're on the board of New York Common, which is one of the largest pension plans in the United States. What are some of your insights that you have with with your experience there with with uh, that large institutional quality investor? What are and I mean, you probably can't talk about their strategy in, in detail, but, you know, what what, what type of trends are you seeing from the institutional side of things? Yeah, multifamily is still very strong and a leading food group for institutional investors. Um, it surprised me, but finally logistics, you know, still quite popular, but it has lost its, its shine. It isn't quite the shiny object that everyone has to pay up for right now in terms of logistics. I don't know if that's supply chain or what, but for a long time, you know, simple warehouses and logistics centers were like, uh, you know, the, the golden egg of real estate. So we've really, I think we've returned a lot to multifamily. It's, it's always been, you know, the commodity food group in real estate, you know, multifamily rental. I think the fact that in most markets, um, the rent trade outs are quite high. You're seeing rental inflation that's very real. Um, I think that the, you know, smart institutional investors um, have more comfort in that asset type than in other asset types today. There's lots of talk about repositioning strategies, you know, in retail and office, and what have you. I'll tell you another area that is quite interesting that I think the institutional world is paying some attention to is uh, limited service hotels and some of the hospitality plays. This was a sector that got really terribly hurt during the pandemic. And uh, there's some major opportunities on recapitalizing some of those companies today, as you would imagine, that were seriously denuded of a lot of their, uh, of their cash. Mm -hmm. So multifamily is still the go-to food group, um, in my opinion. And uh, I, I expect we'll be seeing you know, more and more opportunities, whether it's value add. Now, ground up, I'm not so sure about. 
on the institutional side. There's a lot of variables and factors like supply chain, like what's your final GMP going to be. It's really hard to nail down exactly today. So um, I, I think you know, core multifamily, value-added multifamily, even workforce housing are, uh, are still attractive to institutional investors. Sure. Uh, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, it, it's, it's a good market. Everybody always needs a roof over their head in most markets all over the country. Uh, there's a huge undersupply of, of housing, mm-hmm. of multifamily. So, uh, yeah, we've, I, I'm a big multifamily fan myself. My listeners and viewers of this podcast, that, that should not surprise anyone there. Uh, I think there's a lot of positive trends, obviously, for multifamily. It seems to be the most popular property type for opportunity zone development uh like you like you mentioned at the top of the episode you know mostly new construction um just because of the way the opportunity zone uh statute is written it's tough to do tough to do substantial improvement on on multifamily in most uh areas around the country uh what about what about office though uh you know i office seems to have taken a step backward with the pandemic a lot of workers not returning to the office Mm -hmm. I was I I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think uh, earlier this week or last week about some of the different markets in the country and how they're returning to the office. And and where I am in Texas, we seem to be leading the way in in areas like Dallas and Austin. But even still, it's only at a level about maybe fifty or sixty percent of where it was pre-pandemic. Where you are, Louis, in Washington D.C., the federal government's one of the biggest tenants of, of, I think actually the biggest tenant, correct me if I'm wrong, of office space in the DC area, you know, you mm-hmm. guys are hovering maybe at the 20 or 30% level kind of lagging uh, behind the national average in terms of returning to office. W- what are your thoughts on those trends? And when does office make sense uh, to develop as an opportunity zone developer? We think that the people's apartments, rental apartments are, are going to be the proxy for office for an awful lot of people. So we're designing our apartment buildings for, for live and work in play. So the amenities are the play, the apartment is live, but the way we've designed it, the way we have fashioned it, the way that we've put Zoom rooms on floors, you know, and dedicated spaces and dedicated places where people can go and work like they're, uh, uh, like they're in a WeWorks or what have you. We think that that's really important in our residential buildings. And uh, that's how we're dealing with that with that trend, which is why you're going to see, I think, a lot more apartment buildings built, you know, on our dirt than office. However, let's go back to cyber security, intel, and defense. DC also has uh, a number of sectors where it's important to be in a secured space. Individuals have to go uh, check their phones, you know, little cubbies. And they go to work and it doesn't matter, you know, whether you've watched, you know, the TV show 24 or mission impossible or any of these shows, but that's very real in DC um, or the Pentagon or where, what have you. There's a lot of DC that takes place in person. Not all. If you're, you know, if you're working for the agriculture department, probably not as much. Um, but in many other sectors, um, you're, you're going to work. Um, and, uh, some of those groups, like there's no, there's no uh, surprise that we're working on the National Cyber Leadership Center. Why is that? That's because um, 
you know, cyber needs, uh, it's really interesting, certain physicality. Um, there are things called cyber ranges where in, in the National Cyber Leadership Center, we're going to be teaching offense and defense. So attack, you're, you're an attacker, you're a defender. And it, it looks like something like at a NASA, these, these cyber ranges, you know, people at desks and people yelling out, and, you know, there's an attack and you're trying to afford it and see what's going to work and how do you land the person on the moon and all the rest of that kind of thing. Um, those take physical spaces. They're still being designed. They're hardwired. Um, they're in a government intranet in a black fiber loop. And uh, you can't black fiber and dark fiber people um, so easily in their uh, in their apartments. Yeah, that, that type of so, thing for security issues has to take place at a specific location. That makes perfect sense. So, you know, those will be the kinds of buildings we're building. I'm just being really candid that those are the kinds of things that we do. And and uh, those are the kinds of office buildings or healthcare system. We have a new hospital being built next to us on one of our sites. There'll be other uh, uh, healthcare uh, and other offices where you need the physicality of, you know, going somewhere and having a procedure done or what have you. Um, so that's where I see it in the future in DC, but you do have these bespoke specialized needs in Washington, which will mean um, we'll be developing, you know, every year or two, a new office building for one of these unique users I'm describing. Oh, very interesting, Louis. Uh, well, it seems like we've, we're out of time for today. I think we've covered everything we wanted to, Louis. It was a pleasure speaking with you today again. Uh, before we go, where can our listeners and viewers go if they want to learn more about you and Red Brick LMD? Um, Redbricklmd.com is a good place to start. And uh, if people have specific questions, go on our website. You'll get my web. You'll get my email address, and happy to, to send you a note. Fantastic! And as always, for our listeners and viewers out there, we will have show notes available for today's episode at our website, opportunitydb.com/podcast. And there, I'll make sure that we have all of the links to the resources that Louie and I discussed on today's show, and. Please be sure to also subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Louie, again, really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for being with your, uh, for being with us here today. Thank you. Stay healthy. Have a great summer. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 